Well, good afternoon and welcome from London to today's webinar. It's titled On the Shoulders of Giants, the Digital Exploration of Newton's Career at the Royal Mint. And we're delighted to have as our special guest, uh, Professor Rob Eilif, the Professor of History of Science at the University of Oxford. Um, I first met Rob uh, several years ago uh, before he went up to Oxford and I was listening to this enormous and fantastic the Newton project. And I was determined that he would be able to inform our group, the FS Club, on what's happening in both the study, but also the relevance of Newton to finance, as we well know his relevance to technology. Now, you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and I really do have the honor of being able to introduce many of these FS Club webinars, but I can only do so thanks to the generosity, and I often say tolerance of our sponsors, who allow us to range widely across technology, economics, uh, and finance. And today's uh, lecture, uh, discussion. Uh, we may have a little bit less time than normal for discussion because so much content is clearly about one of the giants of our time. Uh, and Newton had an enormous amount of influences. We well know on science and technology, the Principia, optics, etc. cetera. Uh, but many people forget that Newton spent uh, nearly 30 years at the Royal Mint, uh, far more time than he ever spent uh, on science. And we're going to be hearing a lot more about that. But you don't want my amateur musings. Uh, my job is to get out of the way so you can hear from our expert. And I'll do so in just a moment if I can make uh, three housekeeping points. One, the slides will be available. I think, I think might already be available online. So you can follow along and go back at your leisure. We will have a recording of this, which will go up in approximately two working days. So it should be up sometime on Tuesday, I would hope, uh, and to share with colleagues and friends. But most importantly of all, we do have time for discussion and it's such an interesting topic, but please type your questions, <clears throat> comments and observations into the chat facility here on GoToWebinar and I will feed them into a conversation with Rob. So there's little point in texting me, WhatsApping me, signaling me, emailing me, messaging me, whatever, uh, because the, the truth is I'm here with you, um, but I'll feed all the questions that come in to Rob. And a, and a pointer as well, if you have contributions of a detailed nature, Rob will be getting all of them uh, with your email attached so he can get back to you or, uh, on any queries or comments there. But uh, at this point, I think with no further ado, Rob, the floor is very much yours. All right, uh, Michael, thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I want to say that the, the presentation has a, a number of slides. Um, some of them are in text, uh, most of them are actually images. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, Newton at the Mint. Um, I'll very briefly go through his scientific career at the start, but then I also will finish with a few uh, ruminations and slides on uh, the, the digital aspect of this, because this is part of, or this, this talk results from uh, transcriptions and activity done as part of the, uh, the the Newton Mint Papers project at Oxford. So if we can have the first slide, please, Peter. Thank you. Uh, Newton was born on Christmas Day, 1642. If you are in England, in almost everywhere else, he was born on the 4th of January, 1643. And he died in March, 1727. Uh, as, a, as a young man, he was brought up at uh, Wolsthorpe Manor, which is what you can see here from a picture from Thomas Harrison of 1840. Uh, his father died before he was born. Uh, he was brought up by his mother and his, his maternal grandmother. And 
when he was about 11, 12 years old, his mother came back to the household um, to live full time with a, a brood of three half brothers and sisters for Newton. And very soon after that, he went to Grantham Free School or Grantham Grammar School uh, in 1655. And he was there for the best part of six years, um, showing periodic bursts of you know, phenomenal talent. And in 1661, uh, he went to Trinity College, Cambridge, uh, which is the next slide. Thank you. Um, and Newton's room is, is on the bottom right of your screen. Um, you can just see to the right of the great gates. Um, there's a there's a bit that um, juts out uh, behind a tree. That's uh, where Newton did um, his experiments in his rooms there. And uh, a few years ago, people dug up the the earth to see if there were remains of his experiments, and they did find some. Um, when he was there in the 1660s, he had his Annus Mirabilis, which lasted for two years. The plague years, uh, he discovered the fundamental algorithm of calculus, uh, binomial theorem the heterogeneity of white light, and also tried to show that the, the force that constantly pulled the moon towards the Earth was the, the same force that governed the Galilean law of free fall. And he pretty much did so. But he gave that up. In 1669, he became a Lucasian professor of mathematics. Um, in the mid-70s, he got tired of science and maths and did theology and alchemy. Um, and spent large part of his life doing this. Uh, towards the end of the 1680s, he, he found out that his radical Protestantism made him a, a key enemy of the, the, the Roman Catholic King, James II, and he stood against James, or was prepared to stand against James, towards the end of 1688. But soon after that, there was the, the Glorious Revolution. James II, or Seventh of Scotland, was turfed out. And William of Orange came in from the Netherlands uh, in what's called the Glorious Revolution. And Newton remarkably became an MP for Cambridge University in January uh, 1689. This is the first image of Newton that remains. It's a great uh, famous image by Godfrey Neller, the, the British Dutch or English Dutch portraitist. Um, and this, again, I think is, a, is the definitive picture of, of Newton while still this brilliant, active, um, scientist, the man who two years earlier had published one of the greatest, if not the greatest works in the history of science, the Principia Mathematica or the Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, which made him famous. So in the early 1690s, uh, he's someone who has this immense fame as a, as a natural philosopher, scientist. Uh, people are beginning to be aware of his mathematical prowess uh, and he's an MP. Um, so he's becoming a, a public figure. Uh, in the early 1690s, um, he disappeared from uh, the, the kind of London lights, as it were, and, and retreated back into Cambridge University. But all the time in the early 1690s, he was looking for a plum position in London. Uh, and then I think the next um, the next slide is a, it's a poll, Peter, I think. So I, I, I believe you have a few seconds or minutes to try and answer that one. Well, we, we thought we'd just have this little poll to get the brain cells going because uh, Rob's right. Newton project is looking at 12 million words. So out of the total of 12 million words of his death, how many did Isaac Newton write on theology? One, 1 1.5, 3, or 6? And uh, I'm just launching the poll now. And you'll find, Rob, that the uh, audience of FS Club is extremely quick off the button. Uh, over 50% right. of them in seven seconds, believe it or not. Seven seconds. Uh, <laughs> so, 
Uh, we're up to three quarters of the audience. I'm just about to close the poll. Um, I think we didn't, we weren't crafty enough. Um, <laughs> as you'll notice, 62% reckon it was 6 million. Uh, but maybe you can enlighten them on what these numbers mean. Yeah, the, of the, the 12 million words approximately that, that remain, and it's pretty much what what we think was left at his death that he wrote in his handwriting, uh, about uh, 1 million uh, are on alchemy, about 1.5 million on finance and administration, uh, about 3 million on science and mathematics, and 6 million words on uh, church history, prophecy, and a small amount on on church doctrine. So he, I think he spent a very large period of his life working on this kind of thing. So Newton uh, in the Glorious Revolution is, is a partly private and partly uh, public figure. Um, he's living in this extraordinary period of the 1690s. Uh, following the Glorious Revolution, uh, England almost immediately declared war on France. Uh, so it's effectively England and Scotland, but um, for the sake of argument at this point, we'll call it England. And this war, which lasted for uh, seven and a half years placed great strain on the capacity of, of the government to pay soldiers fighting in Flanders and elsewhere. It's a, an order of magnitude uh, almost bigger than uh, any previous English war effort. In this same period in the early 1690s, we see a, a dramatic increase in the use of bills of exchange and various banking innovations which helped funnel money to Parliament for this new war effort, creating what historians now call the first fiscal military state. And alongside that, we see the emergence of the national debt, fractional reserve banking, uh, a new interest in patents, joint stock companies. Uh, and many of these are, of course, mechanisms to bring money into uh, to the exchequer. Uh, tontines, annuities, new insurance schemes, uh, and local and national lotteries, especially the, the Million Adventure Lottery of 1694, launched by the master of the mint, Thomas Neal. And the most famous of these, of course, is the uh, creation of the, the Bank of England in 1694. Uh, next, please, Peter. So th this is uh, the, the million bank chest. It looks like one of the things you see on some TV programs today, but this was um, uh, 100,000 lots of 10 pound tickets, uh, a lottery. You can still see this is the actual uh, chest that was used with 18 keys. Uh, it says million bank on the side. Uh, and if we can see the next slide, um, there, there are injunctions, both moral and economic, about, um, the, about the lottery. You can see on the left-hand side, a man is very happy because he's bought a ticket. Uh, the whole family's happy. On the right-hand side, uh, you know, <laughs> completely unsurprisingly, the, the lottery hasn't come through. And there's a picture on the back wall, which you can see uh, on the left, it's the Garden of Eden. Uh, and on the right-hand side, things have gone uh, downhill and there's an expulsion from the Garden of Eden in the picture. So uh, next slide, please. Um, there was at the same time, in a way that was separate but also related to some of these mechanisms, a, a, a dramatic currency crisis in the English economy. Uh, in the early 1660s, uh, Charles II, with uh, the help of uh, Nicolas Blondeau, had introduced a, a new machinery to create Mills coin uh, to prevent counterfeiting, what was called clipping and coining. But most coin that was circulating in the 1680s uh, had not been milled with a machine with, with the edges saying, you know, decus et tutam in a declaration and a safeguard, but was actually more crude hammered coin that was capable of being clipped with a clipper and the clippings being melted down. So the coins were getting 
uh, more devalued, more debased, and they were getting smaller and smaller. Newton's later assi assistant at the Mint, Hopton Haynes, noted that silver coin paid as tax was losing weight from about 1686, and clipping and coining accelerated from that date. War temporarily stalled counterfeiting at the start of the 1690s, but it took off again in a big way, causing the price of, uh, of a guinea, so a gold guinea that was set at 20 shillings in 1663, to rise to 30 shillings. And again, this is uh, now something that historians are looking at uh, in the context of, of, a, of a global uh, Eurasian uh, movement of, of money, all always going uh, eastwards because the value of silver was much higher in uh, China and India. It's, if you like, sucking silver um, out from Europe. Um, along with Wren, Locke and others, Newton was asked for his opinion on what to do about the shortage of specie in autumn 1695. It was causing a, a crisis in, in the market. So I'm talking about the, the, the market in which people buy ordinary goods. Locke's solution by not devaluing but recoining at the old silver content was chosen uh, above what almost everybody else suggested, which was to debase or devalue the currency. Locke's solution was chosen as a means of guaranteeing the integrity of the currency. Newton, who throughout this period, I should say, had been angling uh, in desperation, I think, for uh, a position in, in government, but particularly at the Mint, something that's very shocking to people in the Enlightenment and, and the 19th century. People was invited by his very good friend, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Montague, to be Warden of the Mint in April 1696. Montague promised Newton a well-paid sinecure, but the religious moralist, that is to say Newton, could never take on such a position without linking his own integrity to that of the institution. Uh, thanks. As Warden Newton was the representative of the Crown and responsible for legal and criminal work. There were, there were three uh, officers of the Mint, the, the Warden, the Master and the Controller. Um, so Newton was Warden, representative of the Crown, uh, responsible for legal and criminal work. And he arrived at the Mint intent on maintaining its integrity by first of all ensuring the quality of gold and silver coin. And secondly, by prosecuting those who sought to debase it. Um, he pushed hard for legislation uh, to make it a, a capital offence, uh, that is one of treason, uh, to debase the coin. As elsewhere, he quickly took detailed notes on the history and operations of the mint and its workers, analysing in a kind of uh, proto-Fordist way the actions and work rate, what he called the diligence of key workers, to ascertain uh, when their quality and productivity had fallen. And he also set up proper accounting systems for all mints involved in what was called the Great Recoinage, this massive effort to create enough coin in the system uh, to keep the currency uh, in, in good health. And these other mints were at Chester, Norwich and, and York. Here is a, a transcription from the, the website, uh, one of thousands of these kinds of uh, images of, of the, the sort of... Um, effort that Newton put into, the intensity that Newton put into learning uh, about the, the workings of the Mint. So next slide, please. Uh, Newton went to the, the Mint at the Tower of London. Um, for about 30 years, it became a, a place that he went to uh, at least once a week. 
sometimes two or three times a week when there were when there were crises. Um, he entered at the bottom left, uh, at the lower point where you can see AA, uh, and the, the mint runs around the, the outside of the tower. Um, the, the inner lining, you can probably just make out that there's a, there's a street, which is actually called the mint, which runs on the inside of, the, uh, of that picture, going around to the, to the right-hand side of your picture, which the, the, the entire right-hand side or the east side, as you look at it, is the, the Irish mint. Um, there's another picture in the next shot, um, which is a, a, a more expanded view of uh, the mint, um, where it says AA at the bottom. That's where Newton was when he became master of the mint at the end of 1699. And then on the left-hand side, um, you can see B is the entrance to the mint. Uh, C is um, where gold was uh, melted and coined. Uh, and D is B. So E is the the main place where where silver uh, was coined. If we can go to the next slide, um, again, we can just briefly look at that. This is, a, again, a more detailed view of uh, the, the place that Newton worked in for, for 30 years, more than um, uh, anywhere else on a, on a regular basis. Um, towards the, the right-hand side, the, the northeast, as you look, is, the, is really the warden's part of the the mint so that's where he was for four years at the end of the 1690s so next one please uh, newton soon set up a system for identifying and capturing in catching individuals and networks implicated in counterfeiting uh, he took a keen interest in using allies and spouses as informants often paying the latter as witnesses to travel to various inns across the country and also to dress respectively when giving testimony um, his major triumph was catching leading criminals of the day, including the arch counterfeiter William Challoner, who was hanged at Tyburn uh, as a result of Newton's work in March 1699. And Newton designed a series of countermeasures to protect the security of secret mint tools and processes, drafting often draconian legislation against clippers and coiners. So if we have the next slide, this again is a, is a typical one of um, about 180. Uh, similar depositions, uh, where this is a, a very important one. This is the this is the deposition from someone called Catherine Carter, uh, the wife of Thomas Carter. Maybe you can see at the top now prisoner in Newgate. This is just before um, Challoner was hanged, and it was this is the I think the definitive piece of evidence that put um, that put uh, Challoner in the gallows. And uh, again, you can see the amount of detail that. Uh, there is in in this kind of information, and I'll talk a little bit at the end about how that can be turned into uh, a data set that we can look at with by means of uh, the, the, the digital Newton Mint Papers project. So, next one, please. Um, on the death of Thomas Neal, who we met earlier on as the uh, architect of the, the Million Bank Chest, Newton was made Master of the Mint on his birthday in 1699. And the master was responsible for all mint expenditure. He's the, the kind of executive head of production activities uh, and checked by the controller who had a separate account. Newton grew rich in the rare periods where gold coining was extensive, but did not entirely give up his prosecutorial work uh, when he became master. Nevertheless, I think something that has been underappreciated by historians is just how much effort he put into the issue of the gold-silver ratio. So in the next slide, there's a picture of Newton, again, from Godfrey Neller, 
1702. This is a, a, almost a, a, as famous as his previous image. Uh, and the next one, please. Uh, we can see a bit more on his work on the gold-silver ratios. Uh, Newton spent a vast amount of time uh, in the first part of the first decade of the 18th century, uh, during which time he sat as an MP for, the, for a second occasion. On responding, on responding to treasury requests to examine the gold-silver ratio. There's a constant sucking out of silver into the, the Far East that the, the treasury needs to deal with by, um, by calibrating the, uh, the, the ratio between the value of a gold guinea uh, and, and the, the amount of value it's worth in silver. In January 1701, Newton warned that silver coin was being melted for export by goldsmiths to areas where it was worth far more relative to gold, which he said would effectively neuter the success of the great recoinage. And in September 1701, he requested that the standard 21 shillings sixpence value of the guinea be reduced by between sixpence and, and 12 pence. And uh, many of you will know that this is the, the basis of the famous 1717 uh, recommendation, which was accepted by uh, what was now the British government. Uh, to make the, the maximum value at which a guinea could trade at 21 shillings, which is, of course, the, the value that it remained uh, till today. And in this uh, effort, Newton produced a vast study of European and American coins, 150-odd, um, uh, looking at the, the exchange rates between different parts of the world, um, and in particular doing mint assays and also assays by himself of the uh, gold content of these coins. Um, when Newton died, there was a large package of gold coins in his, uh, in his house, and they're clearly related to th this kind of early activity. I'll just briefly go through the, the next bit. Um, with the advent of Queen Anne, um, on the death of William in 1702, um, Newton became closely involved as master in, in designing uh, puff pieces uh, to celebrate her greatness. Um, so uh, over the next two or three slides, if you can do the next one, please, Peter. Um, uh, we can see this is the, uh, the, the coronation. It's a famous coin for those of you who are numismatists of, um, uh, of, of Queen Anne as Pallas Athene, um, slaying a, a two-faced uh, giant with four arms on, on the ground. The two faces are those of Louis XIV and the, the great pretender uh, James II, now in exile uh, in Paris. And uh, the next one uh, we can see uh, is the uh, celebration of the, uh, the, the, the great, what was considered great at the time, the great triumph of English and Dutch ships uh, at the port of uh, Vigo off the Galician coast in October 1702. Uh, and this is a medal designed by uh, Newton and executed by his great engraver John Croker. Uh, on the next slide you can see uh, an image of uh, the uh, half guinea gold coin uh, which is now very rare. This one sold for $40,000 in 2011. It's worth a lot more now. Um, this is a, a gold coin to, again to celebrate the, the, the great triumph of, of the destruction of the, uh, the French and Spanish fleet at Vigo. Uh, in 1702, and it is as a result of this that uh, King Peter of Portugal uh, turned to the English and Dutch side away from the treaty that he had with uh, the French. 
Every few years, the master's integrity in coin production was tested by having gold and silver coins uh, that had been placed in a box known as the picks, weighed and then assayed for fineness and prepared with a plate constructed by the goldsmith's company. And in the next few slides, if we uh, go through them fairly quickly uh, to the next picture of the, um, the gold plate, um, I, I talk about how uh, Newton's uh, every so often he had this trial. Uh, as master of the mint, he was held accountable for the quality of coins uh, at the mint. And on one of these occasions in 1710, uh, if we can go to the next uh, uh, image, please. And one of these occasions, Newton's coins were tried against this particular plate uh, and found to be less uh, accurate and exact as he thought they were. And Newton complained about this. He and other people were turfed out of the uh, exchequer uh, in 1710. Uh, and Newton did a vast amount of effort, uh, went through a, a great deal of uh, exercise showing or trying to prove uh, that this plate was too fine uh, and that testing his own coins against this plate uh, put him in a very bad uh, situation. And in the next uh, slide, I, I simply make the point um, that. Uh, Newton, uh, in a typically Newtonian way, I have to say, uh, tried to show that the, that the goldsmith, despite having produced this extremely fine uh, piece of gold, uh, were not as good uh, at producing gold as they uh, thought they were, and they weren't as good as chemists, or that is to say, uh, people who worked in alchemy and chemistry, uh, and which of course Newton did. So again, if you go to our website, you'll see numerous drafts showing uh, new evidence that, that Newton um, did his own work trying to show uh, how accurate uh, one could be and how far short the goldsmiths fell in their efforts. Um, so in the uh, Newton on accuracy, this the, the next uh, document, um, so we've done that one, thanks. If we go on to the, the, the final uh, slide of this, particular show this is um again newton was uh was caught up in the, the south sea bubble of 1720 this is hogarth's famous uh depiction of the uh of the corruption and the decadence associated with the, the trial in in london um but if we go forward to the the, the following slide um the detailed analysis of newton's work at the mint uh which is made possible by the the Newton Mint Project, which again is, is freely available, shows that Newton brought skills and attitudes to his task from many areas of his personal and intellectual lives. So he brought this, this moral compass, this from theology, he brought this capacity to uh, assess different kinds of evidence. Uh, from chemistry and alchemy, he brought this capacity to assay uh, various materials, silver, gold, and other things like copper and tin. He reorganized the mint to increase efficiency, he prosecuted clippers and coiners, and he improved, as he boasted in 1718, he improved the exactness of the coinage, uh, saving the government thousands of pounds, as he thought, by means of his personal assays. And of course, related to all this, and not separate from it, was his scrutiny of the gold-silver ratio. Right, so I just want to finish the last three minutes, really, by looking at um, some images from the, the digital Newton. Uh, this is a project that I've discussed, funded by the David and Claudia Harding Foundation. We've transcribed already all of Newton's mint papers at the National Archives, along with other relevant letters and papers from, uh, from the Treasury documents there. 
This is going to go live in October 2021, but it's already accessible. And I'll give you the, um, the URL in a minute. It's got additional features such as introductions, commentaries, timelines, and representations of networked relations between the counterfeiters embedded in a digital map of London, John Roke's 1746 map. This is all part of the, the much larger open access Newton project, which we hope can be finished by transcribing all of Newton's scientific papers, which are not yet transcribed, uh, in 2027, which, as some of you will recognize, is, is the tercentenary of Newton's death. So just a few uh, images to finish with to show you what kinds of things we can do. Um, here are a part of a list of all of the documents relating to, to William Chaloner. You can search through them uh, in this way. Um, we have a timeline in the next, uh, in the next image, um, of, uh, which, is, uh, which is dynamic. You can click on it and find documents relating to Newton's efforts to prosecute uh, William Chaloner. In the next slide, there's a, a representation of the network relations between uh, Chaloner and his associates, his, um, his relatives, and also those people who uh, were out to get him. In the next slide, we, we can see uh, a digital map of London. Uh, this again is, the, is a sort of clear, clean, naked uh, version of Roke's 1746 map, uh, but we've overlain it on top of uh, a modern Google map of London. This is um, well, when you toggle between the two maps, this is the midway toggle between the 1746 map and the 2021 map. Uh, and then the next slide, you can see what um, London looks like now. Actually, if you can just go back one, uh, Peter, uh, you can see, um, I, I think in a fascinating way, how uh, modern London pretty much fits on top of 1746 London. So going forward um, to uh, the next two slides, um, we have uh, what happens when you start searching for particular elements within London. We, you can search for inns, um, coffee houses, streets, and so on and so forth. And these are linked to individuals who were there. So you can search for these either through individuals or you can search for them through, uh, through particular place names. Uh, in the next slide, which is the penultimate slide, um, you will see uh, the uh, front page of the Newton and the Mint site with the uh, URL at the bottom of the page. This, this will be available to you afterwards. And then finally, at the end, there is the front page of the, uh, at least I hope there is, uh, the front page of the, the, the overall uh, umbrella Newton project, uh, where you can look up um, what we've done of his scientific mathematical writings, along with his alchemical and religious texts. And you can find almost six million uh, words of his religious writings that will keep you occupied for many years. That's it. Thank you. Rob, that was super. Uh, it's so kind of you to bend to our format a bit and compress so much into it, but I, I enjoyed it. I think everybody else did. What a canter and a lot of great questions here. Uh, just a quick one to start off with. You said, uh, particularly on the, the, when he sort of fails his trial of the picks with the goldsmiths, you said in, in, in a typical way of Newton. Uh, what did you mean by that? Um, I think Newton's trained at university to, in, in, we all think of him as this great mathematician and a great scientist, which of course he is, but he's also, uh, and this comes out in his theological writings, he's, he's a, a great uh, rhetorical prosecutor. Uh, he puts historical figures on trial. Um, that those of you that know he's a, a radical Protestant will know that he puts the, the architects of Roman Catholicism 
uh, Jerome, uh, Athanasius, St. Anthony, all these people go on trial and Newton uh, predictably finds them guilty of various crimes against uh, religion and so on and so forth. But what he does is he brings together a vast amount of evidence to create a case. So what, surprisingly, what he's good at is building a case against people and finding people guilty. Uh, and we can see these skills at, at um, uh, using texts and people as witnesses uh, brought to bear on his life as a, a prosecutor of clippers and coiners. That, that's, that's really what I meant. And also there's a kind of this underlying personality, which is a, of paranoia. His friends, his friends said he was paranoid. Uh, his enemies said he was paranoid. Um, and I think uh, he, he apt to, apt to um, jump to suspicions, I think is the, um, yeah. is the 17th century term for paranoia. And that's what his friends say. Right. And, and they're right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, speaking of the theological bit, uh, Bill Joseph, who I happen to know is dialing in from uh, southern states of America, uh, says Newton's theological concerns seem to be at the theoretical level, perhaps rather than the ethical level. He, he, since he objected to the Trinity, but capital punishment was of no moral concern. Any comments on that? Um, I think that his religious views underpin his uh, ethical views, uh, and the, there's a tight connection between them. I, I don't think that they're separate, actually. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, I don't think for for the vast majority of people of the day, uh, except for the close relatives of those people concerned, um, I don't think capital punishment or slavery, I have to say, um, caused many of Newton's contemporaries, including Newton himself, uh, to uh, to stop for more than one nanosecond to consider it. it. It's just not part of, you know, until the end of the 18th century, those kinds of issues are not part of the moral compass. I mean, it does tell you again how big that revolution was in culture and so on, a hundred years after, or, you know, a hundred years after Newton's working at the Mint. The end of the 18th century, start of the 19th century, the emergence of rights language, these kinds of sensibilities, they're simply not there in Newton's time. Yeah, well, we were chatting in the uh, in what one might call the green room beforehand. That, yeah. of course, was an investor in the South Sea uh, Company twice, and uh, of course, that was actually a company yep. founded on the slave trade. Yeah. That, that's absolutely right. Yes, I, I mean, the, as you can imagine, and I, I'm sure most people watching this know uh, the the issue of the, the 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 culpability, I suppose, of of these historical characters for their um, immersion in these projects, I think is something that's coming to bear now. Um, and I think as historians, we have um, two general principles. You know, one is we're very interested in doing much more research on this. Um, and we recognize that lots of things haven't been done, but we're wary of putting historical characters on the in the dock. Because, you know, part of the historical profession is, is a, you could say it's a pose of objectivity, but it's a principle of objectivity um, that we have a, a kind of dispassionate view about people who lived four, five, six, seven hundred years ago. Um, that's not always the case, but it, it's something that most historians try to aim at. Um, Dave Birch, who, who writes frequently on modern money and digital money, says, I'm sure that Robert's familiar with uh, his all time favorite book, Newton and the Counterfeiter by Thomas Levinson, who is on uh, here with us. Uh, yep. Uh, a while ago um, on the South Sea Company. Uh, one of the lessons I took from this is that the history of money is a story of punctuated equilibrium. The FS Club of 1681 would not have predicted a central bank 
paper money and a gold standard. We cannot extrapolate the next money. Uh, but Dave and Paul uh, Phillips are just sort of curious. What do you think Newton would make of Bitcoin? That's a very good question. I, I had um, some slides that I cut out for for time reasons. Um, what does he make of uh, Bitcoin? The the only the analogy I can think of is is a is an extraordinary debate he had with a man called John Pollocksven at the end of the 1690s, um, where Newton was asked about his view of paper money, and it, it's a it's a complicated set of uh, debates. But really, it, it's about Pollocksven is worried that the introduction of uh, paper money into the 1690s economy, which uh, which I'm going to say is like Bitcoin for the sake of it, it's it's, it's money that's invented out of nothing which of course they're very worried about in principle in the 1690s. But Newton says paper money is, is good um, if, it's, if, it's, if there are price controls, if there's, if there's a group of people who control the amount of paper money in circulation. Um, Newton tends to think that uh, in general, um, anything, can be, anything can count as money. It could be paper, it could be copper, it could be tin, gold or, or silver. Um, but first of all, uh, workmen, uh, and ordinary people need to use specie to pay for goods and to pay for taxes. So that they, paper money doesn't do it for them. And the second thing that's more important is that if you bring too much money into the system, uh, you create inflation and in a, in a way that it reveals, I think, Pollocksman's and Newton's Puritanism um, it, and their mercantilism. Uh, too much money makes or incentivizes ordinary people to buy foreign luxuries. All right. So you need paper money. You need this, uh, this, this fluid in the system, but you mustn't have too much fluid. And I think Newton's extremely interesting there because you wouldn't expect him to be in favor of paper money. But he says um, a, a certain amount of that kind of extra uh, oil in the system is, is good. Um, but he's as opposed to ordinary people buying Italian and French and Chinese scripperies as Pollocksven is. I don't know if that answers the question, but I mean, I do think that there's a, an analogy between the two things. Um, Ian Shackle uh, would like to just uh, take that just a teensy bit further. Um, were there aspects of the financial revolution at the end of the 17th century, other than currency and the mint, that Newton helped to advance? Or was he focused on that, but just sort of an investor in the South Seas and the East India? Um, that's a very good question. I, and, and the punctuated equilibrium thing, I think, is interesting because, uh, you know, we, we uh, the, there were always schemes and projects in the 16th and 17th centuries for something like the creation of Nash, something like national debt. And that, that's why, you know, alchemists are periodically of interest to uh, emperors and princes and kings. Um, I, it, it, it's a... It's an interesting question. I I, um, I I don't know that I can uh, I can say much more than that. I mean, it, there are lots of things going on in that period, 1689 to 1720. But I think, particularly in the 1690s, you, you see all these things coming together that I described early on. You know, the the, the bits and pieces of the financial revolution. Um, what effect did Newton have on this? Uh, I I think, on the one hand. His work at the Royal Mint is um, it's quite narrow and he's been, he's been criticized or not criticized. He's been taken to task for not uh, having been as revolutionary in, in uh, 
changing the economy as he was in mathematics and science, which is obviously absurd. Nevertheless, if you look at his uh, moral attachment to keeping gold, I mean, you, you can see, I think, that he's one of the very first people uh, to take gold seriously as money. Because the, the, the default standard, although people think that there's bimetallism in the early 18th century, it's really silver is money uh, and yeah. gold is something slightly different. But Newton, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say something like he loves only gold, but Newton really takes gold much more seriously uh, than other people. If you look at his work in the Mint, um, th there are some very interesting documents where he kind of gives up trying to stop money hemorrhaging out east and says, well, look, if money keeps, if silver keeps going out eastwards, then maybe you'll get an equilibrium in China, and you know that they will, um, there'll be a gold price, gold silver ratio similar to the one that exists in Europe, and then that will stop the money going out eastwards. So there's that tension in his documents that, uh, again, I I, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think historians now have the opportunity to study in more detail as a result of the kind of things we've done. Yeah, it sounds like an intuitive feeling for supply and demand curves. Uh, Richard Purser, on that same subject, uh, could you explain at all the high demand for silver from Asia at this time, which seemed to be such a big influence? Um, uh, I, I think people are beginning to do work on this. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to, to weasel out of answering the question. We, we just, because of, you know, obvious inevitable Eurocentrism over the last 200 years uh, and because the evidence simply doesn't exist in a in a, a granular way for the 17th 18th century in the same way it does for Europe we don't yet know enough about demand side questions in the the far the so-called Far East we don't know enough yet um, we, we we know that you know half of the gold from South America goes up uh, from Acapulco to Manila uh, and then into China. So half of the silver from South America goes up across the Pacific, and the other half basically goes across the Atlantic, um, you know, hangs around in European economies, and then ends up going uh, going across. And of course, Europeans, but particularly the uh, English and British, are paying a lot of money for Chinese and Indian Indian goods, which is why you know the the second half of the 18th century. And the start of the 19th century for Britain is all about import substitution. It's yeah. about porcelain, tea, all these kinds of things to, to stop the money going across. Yeah, sometimes the simplest explanation is easiest. Uh, we wanted to buy their stuff and had nothing to sell them, yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's what it is, yeah. Uh, Charles Vermont is curious, does the recoinage in any way suggest that the majority of commerce at the time was conducted on credit? Um, That, I, that there, are, there are some things that I don't quite understand. I know that there's um, there's a vast amount, you know, the vast majority of people do not have access to fancy silver coins. Um, they've got access to hammered coin, because hammered coin you know, continues in circulation, obviously, until well into the early 18th century, um, but, but it's not legal. Um, there's copper coin, uh, there's tin coin, there are tokens, uh, and there is there's the periodic renewals of a kind of bartering system. Uh, there is mass, there's a massive amount of credit. That's 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 absolutely right. Yeah, credit is there. I mean, the the growth in bills of exchange is is the same thing on a much higher level because you know bills of exchange are used because 
it's obviously uh, costly and indeed impossible for merchants to ship bullion from one thing to the other, or from one place to another all the time. So bills of exchange, and then, uh, you know, uh, Bank of England denominated notes, uh, they're, they're not in general circulation, but they're used more and more for, uh, for exchanges above a certain level. Okay. Um, whenever I start seeing lots of thanks, and there are lots of thanks I'll be passing on to you um, uh, from, from the audience who really enjoyed this, I'm going to try and squeeze in uh, two questions from Pat Thomas, if I may. Uh, a lot of questions I wish I had time to ask. Uh, uh, Pat's just curious, was Challoner one of many, or the worst one, or just a representation of widespread activities? I, th I think that that's a great question, because it's a historical problem that we, we pick out individuals. Uh, often as as, idi as exemplary or representative, but they they are and they are not representative. So there's a, there's a survival selection of manuscripts. So stuff about Challoner survives because he was so significant, because he was he was better than the others at being a criminal. So he, he is representative of a group of criminals, and we can show that in the depositions that we've got, because he's like many others, but he's better than the others. He's more ambitious, he's more talented, uh, and he takes more risks. You know, he's prepared to take Newton on, he's prepared to go into the parliament, into, into the House of Commons and say that the warden of the mint is a criminal, right? Because he, he doubles down all the time until it's too late. And right at the end, as, as uh, Levinson uh, shows in his book, you know, it's something that's well known to Newton scholars, but he writes these pitiful begging letters to Newton saying, look, I've got a wife and kids, uh, I'm going to be killed. Please save my life. You know, oh dear sir, be, uh, oh dear merciful sir, blah blah blah. Your, uh, your most humble and near murdered servant is how he signs off his last letter. But you know, this guy's put loads of people to death uh, through informing on them. So I think sympathy is wasted uh, on Challoner. So he's representative and and also unique. If that helps. Well, speaking of sympathy, a pointed question, and I, I know a hard one that many historians or biographers don't like, but it's it's from Pat Thomas again. Uh, it's easy to be fascinated by achievements, you know, but what about the person? You know, uh, Rob, do you like Isaac Newton? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think that Newton forced people, and you, again, you can see this in the, that he forced them to either become uh, sycophantic or he forced them to uh, really dislike him. Um, there, there are very few people with an even-handed view of Newton. Uh, that tells you something, I think. Um, I think he would have been, uh, it, it, it depends what kind of person you were in the 17th, 18th century. I think if he was the same person nowadays, living in the early 21st century, he would be insufferable. Um, but if if you're an extremely virtuous uh, religious person living in the late 17th, early 18th century, he's this uh, pinnacle of rectitude, and you would you would definitely want him on your side, especially if you're going for a job. Okay. Well, we could clearly go on, but uh, thank you so much. Just let me turn quickly uh, to close, if I may, with three rounds of thanks. Uh, firstly, to our sponsors. Uh, I know it seems arcane and historical, but it does show the long-running, many centuries confluence of technology the mint, et cetera, the economics, and of course, finance and its instruments. Uh, for my audience, thank you for kicking in here and uh, making sure that I never get a word in edgewise, so I enjoy, I enjoy fielding your questions. 
Uh, we do kick off uh, next week with something, a, a really interesting question from Henry Tillman. You know, where are the emerging hubs uh, in Central and South Asia? Genuine evidence. And for those of you interested in medium or long-term investment, although he's not giving you investment advice, I suspect there'll be a lot to learn. And as ever, go to the website. But most importantly, I really have to thank you, Rob. You, you really rose to this occasion. We gave you, uh, I'm sorry, an unfair challenge. I think it's just the pressures of time in the 21st century. And we'd like well, to thank you very much. so very, very much for coming on. Unfortunately, I can't open the floodgates of applause, but I have my Korean karmic clapper. I assure you, it's not a counterfeit. It really comes from Korea, from a temple. <laughs> uh, and that will have to do, I'm afraid, uh, for audience applause. But thank you so very much. Thanks for having me.